Part 6 of A Brief History of the Order of Dionysus and Paul by Alan Armstrong. In 1988, Mar Francis consecrated Alan Armstrong as Bishop Marcus to continue the work of the Holy Celtic Church. When Bishop Marcus undertook the administration of the Church and the Order, he recognised that Mar Francis had accomplished most of what he set out to do. He had established the order within the Holy Celtic Church and it was now free to engage in the spiritual life on its own terms. Mar Francis had also provided the Church with continuity in passing on the episcopy to Bishop Marcus. What was still lacking was an upper room free from the domestic environment. To achieve this thing was one of Bishop Marcus's first tasks, a task which presented some surprising results. It transpired that one of the members of the order, Brother John, owned some properties, one of which, a small cottage on Shellard's Lane, Alberston near Thornbury, South Gloucestershire, was empty and needed work doing to it. He offered it to the order on favourable terms, so we, that is the order, set about fixing it up. On the ground floor, the main room was arranged as a meeting room, with the kitchen and toilet facilities adjacent. Upstairs, the largest room was transformed into an oratory, with a small vestry adjacent. The cottage was far from perfect, but what was ideal about it was that it was a detached building, free from all domestic activity, which meant that members could stay without inconveniencing anyone. On Holy Saturday, the 10th of April, 1993, the Oratory of the Holy Cross was duly consecrated and made ready for the midnight service of bringing in the new fire. It was a fitting climax to months of work by members of the Order. On another note, one of the saddest duties that arose early in Bishop Marcus's administration concerned the Lincoln community. Bishop Eric's health was failing and on the 14th of May 1993, Bishop Marcus and Father Martin Bithry visited the Right Reverend Eric Eads in hospital. He was in a critical condition after his latest surgery. Eric had been suffering with cancer for some years and had undergone many surgical operations to halt or slow down its progress. When they arrived in Lincoln, it was clear that the end was near and after consulting the medics, it was thought best to administer the last rites without delay. They also deconsecrated Eric's private oratory on the same visit, and on Tuesday the 18th of May at 2am, the Right Reverend Eric Eads died in St Barnabas Hospice, Lincoln. A requiem mass was celebrated on his behalf by members of the Order. The community of St Gregory Palamas, which Eric had formed, and dedicated to healing, and which he ran for some years, was now without its guiding light in Lincolnshire. His deacon Heather Woods, an associate member of the ODP, remained to administer to the flock, but unfortunately Heather died later that year. It was intended that a priest from Bristol would visit monthly to administer the sacrament. However, because of her death this did not happen. It was reported by her family and friends that Heather, who was also afflicted with cancer, 
had been receiving high doses of morphine for some time, and that her medication had been withdrawn, leaving her desolate and in agony. In this tortured state, she took her own life by throwing herself in the river. What is curious about this report about her death is that according to other reports, Heather was not denied the pain relief she required, and in any case, she was unable to walk, thus presumably unable to walk to the river. Heather's life was, so it seemed at the time, to be a series of connected and interlinked yet unique episodes. For example, in 1992, Heather had been admitted into a hospice in Lincoln as the end of her life was thought to be near. As Bishop Marcus remembered during one discussion about this, she informed him that, and I quote, When I was in the hospice, I had an experience. I knew that I would not die, that I had work to do. After a night's sleep, I woke up feeling well. I was brighter than I had been for months, and I began to eat. I came off the morphine and was walking again. My hair had begun to regrow remarkably fast and healthy, and my skin glowed with vitality. End quote. Heather also informed him that she walked out of the hospice, apparently healthy, and returned to a life of healing. How long this lasted is unknown, but clearly at some point in time the cancer returned and a new episode began wherein pain management was a priority. Heather was also blessed, or cursed if you will, with stigmata, a term that describes a physical manifestation upon a person's body of the bleeding wounds of Christ's passion and his hands, feet, head and side. Many think of stigmata as a sign of special holiness. Others have a different view. In Heather's case, it was something of both. On the one hand, together with the stigmata came a state of blessedness and peace. But on the other hand came the envy, the doubts and the negative outbursts of those who were not really part of her life. There were also many visions and inspired writings. These had occurred previously without the stigmata, but they were given fresh impetus by it and were interlinked thematically in many instances. A very interesting account of this is given in the book Spirit Within Her by John and Anne Spencer. Stigmata is not a recent phenomenon. The first reported case was St. Francis of Assisi. He acquired stigmata in 1224, two years before his death. John and Anne Spencer estimate that more than 300 cases of stigmata have been recorded since the time of St. Francis, by far the majority being women. Views are mixed about the nature and occurrence of this phenomenon, but Heather's experience is of particular interest because it is one of the best documented cases in history and no doubts about it have ever been suggested. Heather died on November the 21st, 22nd, 1993, a few months after the death of Bishop Eric Eads. Eric had been ordained by Mar Francis on December the 3rd, 1983, for the community in Lincoln, and on Pentecost Sunday the 22nd of May 1988, he had been consecrated as Bishop of the Holy Celtic Church, again to serve the community he was building up in Lincoln especially with regards to healing, harking back to the objectives of the order set out in 1948. 
The loss of a caring and busy community in Lincoln through Warwick and Heather's demise was a sad event in the history of the order. However, there was little that could be done, as the community in and around Bristol was either too old and retired or were too young and inexperienced. Most of its members were just beginning and were as yet unqualified to function in the cauldron that was Lincoln. Furthermore, Bishop Warwick had left no clear paper trail or modus operandi for the Bristol community to follow. Consequently, those who were left in Lincoln were dealt a double blow by the deaths of Warwick and Heather, from which they never recovered. However, not all was bad news for the order. The Bristol community was growing, and the record book shows an ongoing development of the order as members pass through the minor orders. Bishop Marcus also recognised that things needed to change. The Chapel of the Holy Cross at Alveston could only seat 10 to 12 people, and we regularly had 20 plus people attend. The order was fast approaching the limits of the Chapel of the Holy Cross, and a larger chapel was needed. An opportunity emerged when Brother John offered the order the long-term use of a run-down barn, located several hundred yards away from the Holy Cross Chapel. Brother John had inherited a small farm of 150 acres, but with many derelict farm buildings within its curtilage. The barn was one of those buildings. A lot of work was needed to make the barn usable, including taking out approximately two feet of concrete floor to provide sufficient height. Work began on Wednesday the 12th of July 1995. The floor was excavated, which took some days and a lot of hard work to accomplish. Then a gas-fired underfloor heating system was installed. With the floor thus far prepared, the order was able to proceed according to plan. Fundraising was central to the enterprise, as the order was not, indeed never has been, blessed with disposable income. Through various fundraising endeavours, such as a sponsored walk between Bristol and Bath, sufficient funds were raised to finish the job. If my memory serves me well, it cost in the region of £10,000 and more than six months' labour to realise. Almost all of the unskilled labour was provided free of charge by order members. On Tuesday the 6th of February, the first chapel of the Holy Cross was closed down in preparation for the consecration of the new chapel of the Holy Cross, which took place on Saturday the 6th of April 1996. The new chapel was an immediate success. The curriculum is another matter. It is more complex and time-consuming. Indeed, it is a life's work. It is possible to teach people relatively quickly to be adept in many subjects, without them learning anything that is spiritually essential or important. Furthermore, as valuable as they might be, the training of graduates, doctors and professors is not, in truth, what the Lord incarnated and suffered for. With regard to prayer and meditation, the core teachings had been addressed and it had long been recognised that they will evolve as times and places change. But changing the habitus of a new member requires constant attention because it is a new and unique process for every member who engages with it. Furthermore, without humility, the capacity and willingness to change will always be very difficult, 
Indeed, it has been the immovable object within the heart of those members of the order who have resigned and probably will remain so in the future. The question remains, how does a contemplative order maintain a spiritual discipline that modifies one's habitus? The expectations have always been that a member aspires to engage in the offices thrice daily, upon rising, at noon and before retiring, and joins in meetings twice a week. Regular studies are encouraged as and when the opportunity presents itself. However, this is not really a change of habitus. The mindfulness necessary for genuine habitus transformation requires a 24-7 conscious engagement. This may be possible when approached as a religious or philosophical exercise, but highly unlikely because without an attentive mind and the input of the Holy Spirit, a change in habitus is not possible. It is, I believe, true to say that the attention necessary for a change of habitus is generally lost in a never-ending state of mental and emotional flux, and without the disciplines of prayer and meditation, to focus the attention and to stabilise the chemistry of consciousness, the ability to change the habitus remains out of the question. Yet, this is not the problem it first appears to be. It is not simply a question of opportunity and right conditions. Neither does everyone have the luxury of retiring to a monastery or to a retreat, and even if they did, it would make little difference. People do need to work, to attend to domestic affairs, to engage with the world, with family and friends, if they are to survive. Thus it is not so much what is done or how it is done. We must spiritualize our life in its entirety if we are to change our behavioral reflexes. The early church, especially in the first few centuries, found its strength not only in the Lord, but also by emulating the Lord. This is what is meant by the term exemplar. The Lord Jesus Christ is the model, the antitype of our aspirations, and we really must engage with that if we are to evolve. For many people today, this is difficult to comprehend, yet it is the basis of the spiritual life of the order, and arguably it was the basis of the lives of the desert communities of the Levant, of the primitive Celtic Church and of the early monastic settlements of Europe. This is what habitus means to the order. It sets the order apart, not in an elitist fashion, but in its dedication to the work of spiritual transformation, which has ever been the work of the Church. As time passed, one observation slowly emerged within the mind of the order. The membership was no longer centred, in one town or city which had in the main been the traditional way of things. The membership base was now spread out over a much larger area, as were the people who expressed a general interest in the subject matter. This meant that regular gatherings in one location became increasingly unfeasible, and although the possibility of running a seminar or conference in one place still remained, Regular communal activity required another approach. Furthermore, it was becoming clear that the internet, rather than a reference book or magazine, was the first place that people went to learn about something. 
With this dawning realization, the Order gradually began to make changes to the traditional methods of interacting with the world at large. The Internet was gradually being recognized as a vehicle that could provide some assistance with this, insofar as it is a universal platform that is public and open to the world. Thus, after much discussion through 2011 and 12, the website ecclesiasticacaltica.org was eventually designed and completed by Brother Johannan in Cornwall and is currently maintained by Brother Luke in Wiltshire. However, running regular face-to-face meetings was an increasing problem. The pace of life in the third millennium had increased and continues to increase without remorse. With the best will in the world, people were finding it difficult to sustain long-term commitments to regular evening events. This was answered in part by the advances in video conferencing that were being developed on the internet. Like many such organisations, the Order began looking for a video conference tool that was both understandable by the organisation and manageable by the public user. There are, without doubts, some very elegant and sophisticated tools available, but having the understanding and the resources and the depth of pocket to use them is another matter. Nevertheless, the Order did need to engage with something of this sort, but what? In 2015, the Order began to use Skype, as it was relatively accessible and inexpensive to work with. And as they had no idea as to what might or might not be possible, they boldly stepped forth. However, they soon discovered that although Skype is a very nice tool to use on a small scale, it was still limited in its capabilities. Furthermore, it crashed too often, which was frustrating. The order then tried WebEx, which was thought to be the leader in the field. But it was discovered that although it may have been true some years previously, it wasn't so in 2015-16. In short, it hadn't been updated for quite a while and it misbehaved terribly. Eventually, the order was led to Zoom, which provides the most stable platform with a wide range of products the order might use. As of January 2018, Zoom remains the video conferencing tool of choice. In spite of the technological developments taking place, new problems began to emerge concerning how to engage with the public on the internet. Apart from displaying information about our vision and mission, about our activities and objectives, values and aspirations, how can we identify and select members? It is a question that has no easy answer, especially for a contemplative order such as ours. Looking to increase numbers is a problem. A few souls that are ready are preferred over many that are not. But to acquire those few, many have to be tried. As it is said in other quarters, you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. And it is a two-way process. Individual seekers are just as cautious as any organisation. It takes something special to earn a person's trust, especially online, and the question remains as yet unanswered. Here we draw to a close part six of a brief history of the Order of Dionysus and Paul. I thank you.